I'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, up to and including chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you may know I like cycling, and when we lived in Mexico, we lived in the mountains, and so we did mountain biking. And I think the the hardest one-day bike ride I ever did was not a long ride. It was only about 15 miles, which is not a particularly long ride, even on a mountain bike. But the problem was the elevation change. We started at about 5,900 feet, and we went up to 13,000 feet over uh, 15 miles. So the elevation change was about a mile and a third over those 15 miles. We went up to the top of what's called the Nevado de Colima, the the snow peak of Colima. And it was was quite miserable. Um, (laughs) I was having trouble breathing. My, My heart was pounding. I was dizzy. Uh, we, we went most of the way, and then we took a rest, and then we went the final way. But part of the final way, it was so steep and so rutted that we had to push our bikes up it. And not everybody made it. Um, some people caught a ride in a Jeep, but even the Jeep was struggling uh, to make it at that altitude. Those, of course, who were in better condition were the ones who made it. But everybody had the exact same technique to make it through that ride. And the technique was this. One pedal stroke after another. Or, if you're pushing your bike, one step after another. That was really the only way to do it. There was no other trick to it. All of us had to simply press on. And that's the repeated commandment here in this text. Press on. This is not complicated. Press on. That's the technique. And it's the technique, we find, of the Christian life. Now, the way, we, the way we do this, by dividing texts up into smaller sections, this is not a long letter. I could read the whole letter in a few minutes, but we divide it up, and sometimes we lose the continuity. So what we need to see is, is what Paul is doing here is, is clarifying what he said in the text we saw last week. Because in the text last week, he talked about how we receive God's righteousness by faith, that we don't produce our own righteousness, We're passive and we receive God's righteousness by faith, and that's how we stand 
in, in right relationship with him. And then he ended on this triumphant note about verse 10, I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now we have a clarification. And the clarification is simply, but I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And because I'm not there yet, I want to tell you what my mindset is, what my mentality is, and what mindset you need to have as well. Now, on the one hand, this clarification is, is unnecessary, right? Um, nobody had to say, Paul, have you reached the resurrection of the dead yet or not? Of course he hadn't, because the resurrection of the dead has not yet come. So on the one hand, it's like, why are you clarifying and saying you haven't reached the resurrection? But on the other hand, this clarification enabled Paul to double down again on one of the main themes of this letter, and that is the Christian mindset. If we, if we have received righteousness by faith, this right standing before God, and if we have not yet been risen from the dead, then what do we do in the meantime? What is the mentality, what is the mindset that we must have in the meantime? And we have seen this throughout. It's translated a few different ways, but we've seen this, this emphasis on mindset. If you go to, back to chapter 2, verse 2, have this same mind, uh, verse 3, of one mind. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. And, and then we see it here also, uh, verse 15, think this way if you think otherwise. And then chapter 4, verse 2, uh, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, that is to have the same mind in the Lord. This is all working on the same concept here of mind or mindset. And this clarification also complements the passivity of last week. You see, last week, what was the believer doing? Nothing. Receiving, being completely passive, receiving righteousness from God, somebody else's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, we were doing nothing. And so if we all we did were to read that section, we might conclude that the Christian life is doing nothing because we receive this righteousness as a gift from God. But this clarifies and complements and says, no, that's not exactly how it is. We do receive Christ's righteousness by doing nothing or rather by believing, which is receiving, receiving by faith a gift of righteousness. But we have to keep living as well. And so how do we live in the meantime? And the, the Christian mindset is to press on. He says it two times. He says, not that I've already obtained this. What is the this? It's the, it's the package here that he described here. This, this knowing Christ, this being made like Christ, in the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. And then in verse 13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, verse 14. So he says it twice, I press on, I press on. This is the mentality of the Christian between receiving Christ's righteousness and the resurrection from the dead. But he makes it he makes it clear here and says that I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There are a couple of different ways you could translate this. Both of them would teach us something that's true. I go back and forth about which is which is the best. But this says I press it on. I press on to make it my own. The idea here is um, to grab hold of 
to lay hold of, I press on to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by Christ, or because I have been laid hold of it by Christ, similar in meaning. Um, but the manner of laying hold that he describes here is forgetting what's behind and stretching forward to what's ahead. He says, I, I press on, I want to lay hold of something, and I want to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me, or I want to lay hold of, 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 of this whole package because Christ has laid hold of me already. Forgetting what lies behind. Look at verse 13. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's very practical, very psychologically astute, isn't it? Very practical advice, right? To, to forget what lies behind to forget the, the, the terrible failures, to forget the, the great successes, to, to forget what lies behind and to press on toward what lies ahead. That's the only way, and this is obviously a, a race metaphor here. How do you win a race? How do you finish a race? You finish a race, you win a race by not looking behind, but stretching forward to what lies ahead. And this is the athletic metaphor here, stretching ahead. And what is that, what is that that lies ahead? It's the prize. And what is that prize? We put this together with last week. It's the prize of knowing Christ and being conformed to him. This is the, the promise that is held out to us in his call to us. It says, I, I press on toward the goal. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize of knowing Christ, of being conformed to him. That's that to which we have been called. Now, there's an interesting and, and maybe kind of humorous turn here in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature. Now, if you look at verse 12 and compare it to verse 15, he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already, and here the word is translated perfect, it could be complete or it could be mature. And then we have the same word group in verse 15, let those of us who are mature or complete or perfect. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You just said in verse 12, I'm not, I haven't been perfected. And now you're saying those of us who are perfect, the same word. And it may be, be a playful use of this, saying, no, I haven't been perfected in the absolute sense of it. But there, there is a maturity. There is a completeness that we have. And here he's including the Philippians in that completeness. That is to say, those of us who are mature, you and I, those of us who have gotten some measure, and he always treats these Philippians as mature believers. But he says this is the, this is the, the mentality of the, of the complete who are moving towards completeness, of the perfected who are moving towards perfection, of the, of the uh, mature who are moving towards maturity. And what is that mentality in verse 15? Let those of us who are mature, what is it? Think. Here's the mindset. Think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul is not throwing up his hands and saying, ah, you can think whatever you want and God will take care of it. He's dealing with the mature who already have reached a, a certain level of unity in the faith and unity of thinking. But he's saying there will be some details along the way and, and God will take those, care of those as well. If you are mature, if this is your mentality, God will, God will be, be directing these things about which we're, we still need to, to, to grow in maturity in our thinking. God will reveal it. But then he says another very, very practical thing. 
Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, don't go backwards. If you want to go forward, the first thing you need to do is not go backwards. Okay? So, so he's speaking with the mature and he says, we've obtained a certain level of knowledge of Christ. Don't go backwards. It's tragic when professed believers go backwards. And I've seen it many times in my life. And how, how do they go backwards? Sometimes they, they start moving backwards. Other times they just stop moving forward. And when they stop moving forward, they just sort of start drifting backwards. I've done cross-country skiing only once in my life and spent a lot of time on the ground. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult. Um, but um, but cross-country skiing is amazing because people who know how to do it can ski uphill. Of course, downhill skiing, you're using gravity, but they can ski uphill. And they have to do two things. They have not to go backwards, so they have to exert energy simply to stay in place. Well, unless they're standing sideways or something. But if they're, if they're skiing up the hill, facing up the hill, they have to exert energy simply to stay in place and not go backwards. And then they exert more energy to move forward. And that's how it is. You're, you're, if you stop in this Christian life, you're not going to stay where you are. Because there is a downward pull in this world in which we live. And to some degree or another, it has its, its, its anchors in us. It still has a, a grip on us to some degree. And so if we stop moving forward, we will start drifting backwards. So he says, don't, don't drift backwards, but rather set your eyes on the prize and keep moving forward. Then he says, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. And this is good news, especially for individualistic Westerners, perhaps, you're not alone. We have help, and we help each other. And in verse 17, he says, follow good examples. There are some good examples out there, and Paul in included himself in that. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In, in races, long races, they have pacers. And if you want to run a certain pace, you don't need to keep the time. You just need to follow that person because that person is keeping the pace you want to keep. And all you need to do is stay with that person. And that's what he's saying here. There are paces in the Christian life, pacers rather, in the Christian life. And if you want to, you want to go in the direction they're going, if you want to go in the pace they're going, just, just stick yourself to them, follow them. And Paul said, I'm doing this. And there are others that are doing this as well. We know a couple of them, don't we, from this letter. We know about Timothy. We know about Epaphroditus. And there were others. So stick yourself to them. Follow their example. Now, this might sound sort of arrogant on, on Paul's part, but, but he says this a number of times in his letters. This is not a slip up. He says this a number of times in his letters. Imitate me. But then a couple times he adds explicitly what's implicit in all of them. As I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, I'm going in the right direction. And so just, just follow me in going in that direction. Follow me in pressing on to know Christ. Now, this is, this is very, very practical advice. If you're not sure what to do in the Christian life, find someone whom you think is doing well in the Christian life and follow him or her. Imitate your life 
after that person's life. I knew a pastor, all of his illustrations had to do with sailing. You might think that all of mine have to do with cycling. But um, Sandy and I were in a foreign city once, and we rented some bikes, and we wanted to explore the city. We didn't speak the local language, although all around the world they speak English, uh, but, so we weren't too concerned about that. But we just took off. We didn't really know where we were going, just exploring the city. And then we're trying to figure out how to see the city, and, and, um, and then we noticed another cyclist, and he was obviously a local. He, he looked like a local, he dressed like a local, he cycled like a local, he obviously was a local. And I said, well, let's just follow him. And Sandy said, but we don't know where he's going. And I said, but he does. And so we followed him. And I was right. He knew where he was going. And he went down some, some back lanes that were absolutely stunning. And we got to see parts of the city that we never would have found. All we did was we followed somebody who knew where he was going. You see, sometimes in the Christian life, we get confused, don't we? And we get discouraged. And we might say, I, I really don't know where I'm going. Well, just find somebody who knows where he or she is going and follow that person and you'll get to where you want to go. Now, unfortunately, Paul needed to remind them that there were not only good examples out there, but there were bad examples as well. And this is something of a, an aside here, a parenthesis, but it's very important in verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have told you now, uh, who I've told you and now tell you, even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Now, there's a lot of debate among the scholars about who these are. I think they complicated a little bit. It looks like these are professing Christians, not necessarily an organized group of opponents or anything like that, but professing Christians that started slipping backwards. That didn't keep their eyes on the on the prize, professing Christians who who started giving in to their their own passions and and appetites, professing Christians who started not only doing shameful things but glorying in those shameful things and calling shameful things right, and Paul says that he's weeping over them as he wrote this with tears. He says that they, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, they don't profess to be enemies of the cross of Christ, but Paul says that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. They profess to be believers in Christ, but they're, they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ by the way they live their lives, by the things they practice, by the things they approve, by the things they pursue, by the passions they, they practice. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't, don't follow them. You see, Paul's reminder is a pertinent warning to us today and any day. But it's a warning for us not to adapt Christianity to our passions, but to adapt our passions to Christianity. And there are, there are strong movements among professing Christians, apparently every day, but certainly in our day, which are saying, no, these, these passions that are inimical to Christianity, no, actually, they can, be, they can be brought in, and this is all okay. Let's just adapt Christianity to fit these rather than the other way around. You see, Paul's saying, be careful about that. Because there are many, and there were many, that have 
that have lost the sight of, of Christ and are no longer pursuing him, but pursuing their passions while even claiming to be Christians. Now, in contrast to this, this is kind of that, that sobering interjection here. In contrast to that earthly mindset is verse 20. But our citizenship, our citizenship or our commonwealth, our citizenship, our, our passport country is in heaven, in heaven. And the greatest thing about heaven is not only that Jesus is there, but he's coming from there again. And from it, we await a savior. So our, our passport country, that, that determines how we live wherever we might be. That's how it is with a passport, right? If you have a passport from a certain country and you travel in another country, you have certain privileges and responsibilities because you hold that passport. That's what he's saying here. Your commonwealth is heaven. So wherever you might travel, in whatever situation you might be, that, that determines your privileges and your responsibilities. And it also reminds you that a Savior, a Savior is coming from heaven. We wait for that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, 21? Who will, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So now he gets back to what he started with, the resurrection. The resurrection that he mentioned in verse, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now he tells us when that resurrection from the dead will happen, when that Savior comes from heaven and will transform these lowly bodies into conformity to the body of his glory. By what power? That power that enables him to subject all things to himself, even even death. That's when that will take place. Now, this verse 1 of chapter 4, you will notice that in this translation, it's grouped with this, these paragraphs, this section. But whoever came up with the chapter, chapter or the, the Bible chapters and verses thought that it went with chapter 4. And it's really hard to decide because it works like a pivot. So I'm reading it today and I'm going to read it next week again. If it is the conclusion to chapter 3, it's an apt conclusion because it says, this is the mentality you must have, standing firm by pressing on. And if it is the introduction to chapter 4, it's saying, this is the mentality you must have by standing firm by being united in your mindset. So either way it works. But what does he say here? He calls the Philippians his brothers and sisters. He calls them loved twice. He calls them that and longed for, something he already told us back in chapter 1, that he longed for them. And then he calls them his joy and his crown. We've been working on this concept of joy, haven't we? And we saw last week, we hit bedrock last week. The, the bedrock is the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's something that doesn't change. That something is always and forever. The Lord is our cause of rejoicing. But we've always also seen throughout this letter that each other is a cause of rejoicing. And here he says, you Philippians, you are my joy. You are my crown. You are my glory. And he says this to only two churches. This expression shows up only twice. He says it to the Philippians 
and he says it to the Thessalonians. Interestingly, both churches from Macedonia, the, two, uh, the, the churches that most supported Paul in his ongoing ministry. Now, um, this shows us once again that, that while we have that bedrock, that bedrock of, of, of joy in the Lord, we also can be each other's joy. You can be my joy. I can be your joy as well. And what's the, what's the message here? Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. It can conclude chapter 3. Stand firm in the Lord as you press on. It can introduce chapter 4. Stand firm in the Lord with one mind. Now, putting all that we've seen in this chapter and verse 1 of chapter 4 together, we see one of the challenges of the Christian life. And that is this. There are aspects of the Christian life in which we are entirely passive. We do nothing but receive gifts from God. And then there are other aspects of the Christian life in which we are vigorously active. And, and, and much of the problem of the Christian life is knowing when to be passive and knowing when to be active. And here we see he starts out with the passive in chapter 3. He says, you are entirely passive. When you receive a righteousness from God that you receive by faith, that is a gift from him, entirely passive. We call that justification. And then he says, with regard to knowing Christ and becoming more like him, we need to be vigorously active because, as we saw back in chapter 2, because God is vigorously active in us. We call this sanctification. And then, in terms of the resurrection of the dead, having our bodies transformed into conformity with Christ's glorious body, once again, we are entirely passive. It is the exercise that, that Jesus has to submit all things to himself, even dead bodies. We call this glorification. And then, in terms of standing firm in the meantime, we... Call this perseverance. And once again, we need to be vigorously active. Passive, active, passive, active. But the emphasis of the text today is active. If you receive that righteousness of Christ passively, if you're looking forward to that day when passively you will be transformed by the power of Christ, then in the meantime, you need to be active by pressing on. Let's pray. Lord, we receive with open hands, empty hands, the righteousness of Christ by faith. And we press on to know Christ and to be conformed to him, knowing that one day by your power, you will conform us perfectly to him. And Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you would keep us from going backwards, that you would keep us from sliding into into conformity to the world with an earthly mindset, affirming that which you forbid, forbidding that which you affirm. And I pray that we would be able to keep going forward, to press on, to be good examples for one another, and to follow the best examples around us, Lord. We pray that as we press on, we would know Christ more and more and show him more and more to those around us. We pray in his name. Amen.